everyone. Uh, welcome to the seventh episode of the Neurodame, um, of the Students Talk Security, um, Neurodame International Security Center uh, student podcast. Uh, my name is James. I'm a political science major. And with me here is Professor, professor Michelle Hawks. Professor Michelle Hawks is a professor of Chinese literature in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures and the director of the Liu Institute for Asian and Asian Studies in the Kyoto School of Global Affairs. Hawks has published both in English and Chinese on topics related to modern Chinese poetry and literature culture, especially early 20th century Chinese magazine literature and print culture and contemporary internet literature. His latest book, Internet Literature in China, was listed by Choice Magazine on one of the top 25 outstanding academic titles of 2015. Prior to Notre Dame, Hawks served as a director of the China Institute at SOAS, University of London, and Hawks earned his PhD from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Thank you for being here today, Professor Hawks. My pleasure to be here. Um, and for, um, so, as of today, um, today, they have the recording, it's still October, um, which is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in the US, and it's a very timely for a topic of internet security in China and US. Um, this topic of cybersecurity is one of increasing prevalence in today's world. I'm sure memories of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal that was uncovered earlier this year in early 2018 are still fresh in our minds. And it was revealed Cambridge Analytica had harvested private data of millions of Facebook users so that they could identify the personalities of American voters and influence their voting behavior. After the scandal, there seems to be a large expectation for private companies to filter information and an emphasis on the importance of national security in cyberspace. So I'd first off like to start by asking a very simple question of what is cyberspace? Thank you. Uh, it's, it's actually not a simple question at all. But um, So the term cyberspace, uh, there are different uh, records of uh, who coined that term and, and where it comes from. But... Uh, the one that most people mention is uh, that cyberspace was used for the first time by a science fiction author by the name of William Gibson, in I think in the early 1980s. Uh, and he referred to cyberspace as the space where either machines communicate with machines or human beings communicate with each other via machines. Uh, and he... Uh, refer to that uh, as a consensual hallucination. So, because of course it's not really a space, but it's something that you, know, you imagine to be a space um, that actually exists and where communication takes place. Uh, and the opposite of that, uh, according to many people, the opposite of cyberspace is then meat space. So that's where the actual meat people you know, communicate with each other. So the two of us sitting in a room talking to each other, now we are in a meat space. Uh, but once you, you know, broadcast this, uh, this podcast, uh, then it becomes part of cyberspace. That's, that's the basic idea. Um, so are there boundaries and borders in cyberspace? Well, so my, my argument would be that boundaries and borders are also consensual hallucinations. Uh, and coming from Europe, uh, perhaps I'm influenced by the fact that, you know, if, you, if you're in continental Europe, it's, it's you drive across borders or you walk across borders without even noticing they're there. Uh, so the only time you see a border is when you look at a map. 
And so it's like, oh, someone has drawn a line here. So, so if I set sort of one foot on one side of that line and one foot on the other side of that line, I'm in two different countries. And then, but of course, it doesn't mean a thing. I mean, the people who live in the border areas, they don't necessarily feel that they are either one or the other, right? So I think your boundaries only, or borders only come into being when people talk about them and when they create representations of them. And so as such, cyberspace as such, I mean, it isn't even a space, it's a hallucination. And, uh, and the boundaries that there may or may not be are also sort of being brought into being by discourse, by people sort of talking about them. Uh, and as such, um, we can think of many examples of, of cyberspace boundaries, uh, and they're usually imagined uh, as things that also exist in the real world. So a very common boundary in cyberspace is the paywall. Uh, so you access certain types of information, and at some point you're being told that you can only access more information if you take out your credit card or whatever and you pay. Uh, so, you know, you can only read so many articles of the New York Times online before you hit the paywall, for instance. Right? So a wall uh, is a very common um, representation of something that you might call a border or a boundary online. Uh, then there's the firewall, uh, which of course isn't a real wall, but is a, is a way of ensuring that your network or your computer doesn't connect to certain other computers or other networks. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, that's a metaphor that's uh, been used very often when talking about internet censorship, internet control, and also cybersecurity. Um, so that will be my answer. I mean, borders don't exist, but if, if they do exist in some way, then, then they also exist in cyberspace. And there are ways of bringing them into being, and, and it usually comes back to these really crude metaphors that people are so fond of, both in meat space and in cyberspace, uh, especially the metaphor of the wall. Uh, you build a yeah. wall and then everything will be fine, you'll be safe. Um, you mentioned um, the in initial um, analogy that borders were kind of, in Europe, were more um, on maps and drawn by lines and it's kind of acted on like by national borders. Are there these national borders um, on cyberspace? Um, so I think there are, but again, that it's it's they're very complex. Um, so in the case of China, which is you know the case I know the most about, I mean, there's been a a lot of discussion in China, especially in the early years of uh, China's connection to the internet, as to whether or not China should somehow erect boundaries around its portion of the internet. So, uh, and again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you sort of shut everything else out. Somehow you don't allow anyone. I mean, what's the point of connecting to the internet if you're not going to allow people to use the internet, right? But, but one way of, of erecting boundaries would be to, to have your part of the internet run on different protocols, uh, which, uh, and there was in the late 90s, there were so security experts in China seriously proposing that, saying, well, we have to make sure that our internet works different from the internet in other parts of the world. So we have that, we have our own 
protocols, our own software, our own, you know, so, so theoretically they could have said, well, yes, we're going to have a World Wide Web, but we're not going to use the HTML protocol, for instance, or uh, we're not going to register our website with sort of global dom domain name servers, so our IP address is going to be different from everybody else. It's, uh, they talked about it a lot, but they never really decided to do that. So they, so the internet works the same in China as it does in other countries. Uh, so then the next thing they came up with <coughs> was the firewall, uh, what some people refer to as the Great Firewall of mm. China. Yeah. Uh, so a very crude mechanism whereby you do not allow anyone within the sort of larger Chinese domain to connect to certain websites that are on a blacklist. Uh, and um, you know, so it's, it's the type of firewall that you and I have in our own personal computers extended to the whole of you know, the Chinese section of the internet. Um, so technically how it works, I'm not entirely sure, but I think China is connected to the internet physically by only a small number of cables. So you can control the traffic that comes in through those cables and you can say, that if anyone in China tries to connect to the following websites or the following IP addresses, they will not be allowed to make that connection. So that's a very basic and crude way of trying to keep certain stuff out. And that's presented as a form of security. Um, so would, would, this, would the firewall also act as a way to prevent stuff from coming in as well? Um, so, yeah, so if you don't allow people to connect to certain things, then the information on those foreign websites that you can't connect to then doesn't, doesn't come in. At least it doesn't come in if you follow the official channels. Uh, um, but it's a very crude method. Uh, so any organization that's interested in you know, getting stuff into China, uh, they could, for instance, routinely change their IP addresses. They could... Uh, set up new sites all the time. Uh, there are all kinds of ways of, of making sure that you go around the firewall. Um, so it's, you know, it's very difficult to control what's coming into China uh, or any country for that matter, only by means of using a firewall. Uh, the problem with firewalls is also that they, you know, they tend to block entire domains. So you know, in the early days of Chinese internet censorship or internet security, uh, entire websites would be blocked because there was one offending page. I think the BBC website was blocked for a while because there was one page on in the whole of the BBC domain that had a map of China that did not include Taiwan in it. Uh, so, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, um, so, so over time, things have become a lot more sophisticated, and, and the firewall is really sort of is is the crudest of ways of trying to control the internet and trying to control what comes into the country, and it's 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 increasingly less important uh, for China in terms of its cybersecurity. Could you speak a bit about these more sophisticated methods other than the firewall um, that are currently in place? Sure. So uh, the most sophisticated method of, of preventing access is to, um, to regulate the 
use of search engines. Uh, so now the internet is not the same as the World Wide Web, but in practical purposes for most people, the internet is the World Wide Web and vice versa. Right? So, so in the old days of the World Wide Web, search engines were not that important. Right? So you would follow links or you would type in web addresses and that's how you would access information. But you know, but search, search engines have changed all of that and the rise of Google especially has led to a situation where basically if you cannot Google something, if you cannot search for something in a search engine, then it doesn't exist. And it's very, very <coughs> rare that you will find something if you haven't searched for it. And so, so one much more sophisticated and effective way of controlling access to unwanted information which China views as a form of security protection uh, is to make sure that when people search for the information, certain things do not show up. Uh, and they have invested a lot in those processes. Uh, so they will um, instruct internet search engines and companies that produce search engines to ensure that uh, searches for certain sensitive keywords filter out particular results. Uh, and I don't know the exact details how they do that, but basically, you know, if you search for Dalai Lama, you will not, the search results will not include websites that support the Dalai Lama or that represent the Dalai Lama. They will, you will only get websites that have a negative view of the Dalai Lama. Uh, that would be one example. Um, and any <coughs> company, including American companies that have web search engines as one of their products, uh, you know, if they want to be active on the Chinese market, they have to adhere to those, to those rules. Uh, so a company like Yahoo, a company like Bing, uh, they're all active in China on that market. Uh, and for them, it's just a question of, well, if that's the law, then that's what we have to do in order to be to be able to work in this country. Uh, Google, of course, famously decided a number of years ago that they were not going to do that. Uh, they challenged Chinese government by sort of uh, removing all the filters and just allowing everybody to search for anything, um, which then basically has a knock-on effect because then you know, they actually have to start censoring the websites that people find through those searches, right? So, um, and then Google was basically blocked, uh, and Google itself decided to move its search engine operations elsewhere, um, and you know, and gained a lot of credit in the process. Uh, even though Google continued to be active on the Chinese market with Google Maps and Google Translate and things like that, and, and as we know from you know recent news reports, Google is now actively considering going back into the Chinese market and having some sort of filter in place that would uh, adhere to the Chinese regulations. Yeah, um, so kind of coming back from that, um, are, are there any other, um, I, I know your expertise is on China, and mm -hmm. um, are, are there any other countries that might have attempted to enact, um, I guess, like these borders on the internet, um, maybe even the US or? Yeah, so I, I was thinking about, I mean, there are other countries, other countries that censor the internet and, and it's often, 
you know, a combination of some sort of firewall and some sort of keyword filter. Uh, Saudi Arabia does it. Uh, Myanmar, of course, there's been a lot has been written about about Myanmar. Uh, so in the U.S., uh, on a national level, um, I don't know enough about it, but I I am not aware of. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist of any attempts to sort of erect some sort of national boundaries around the U.S. Uh, cyberspace. I mean, and it's, I mean, of course, the U.S. Is, is, is unlike any other country, does not make frequent use of a national domain to begin with, right? So .uk is Britain, .cn is China, but .us, it does exist, but we're more used to .com, .edu, and things like that. So, so uh, I think the U.S.'s approach to this generally, just by reading the news and, and hearing public opinion, seems to be that that the U.S. is responsible for the whole world and not just for <laughs> itself. Right? So when you know when Facebook is, I mean, again, Myanmar is a good example. When Facebook was criticized for allowing certain types of you know hate speech online in Burmese in Myanmar. Uh, that was, you know, immediately considered by many in the U.S. to be a U.S. issue because Facebook is an American company. Uh, I've never thought of Facebook as American. You know, when I was living in the U.K., I was using Facebook, and I, I, I didn't even realize that by doing that, I would be subject to any American laws or regulations or or public opinion in America about what I was doing. So it's, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, the general U.S. perspective is still that. The internet is this sort of global space, uh, but there's of course, a, and then if it does need to be protected against anything, then that also is something that's not just limited to things happening within the U.S. Uh, having said that, uh, of course, cybersecurity in general, which is not just about the World Wide Web, is I'm sure is something that the U.S. takes very seriously and that they try their very best to make sure that you know they're not being hacked and they're not being sold spyware as part of their equipment made in China and things like that. But I, I don't know enough about that. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned like Facebook and mm -hmm. these like private companies. Um, do you think that of uh, this uh, matter of national security or cybersecurity in the U.S., like should the government be intervening in cyber traffic? So I think Yes, I think you know the, the laws of the land should apply to any kind of public, uh, you know, publicly uh, public information or public statements or publications. And what you know, if you write things on Facebook and and other pe people can see them, then I think you are active in the public sphere, and therefore there should be legal limits to what you can say and what you cannot say. Um, what I find interesting is that in, a, in many Western countries, including the U.S., sort of the, the whole sort of understanding of the internet, including things like Facebook, and partly because of things like Facebook, seems to be changing. Right? So, for China, the internet was right from the beginning was a potential security threat. Uh, you know, China took a conscious decision in the mid-90s that they were going to connect to the internet uh, and they knew what they were doing. I mean, the early sort of policymakers from China have, you know, 
gone on record to say that well, we realized that connecting to this thing called the internet is a potential threat. We realize that things are going to come in that we cannot keep out. But on balance, you know, in terms of our participation in global trade and global you know, communication, the benefits outweigh you know, the, the, the threats. So we're going to do it anyway, and we're just going to try to control it as best as we can. Uh, I mean, the, in the US around that time and throughout sort of, you know, the first 10 years or so of the internet, uh, the um, imagination of the internet and of cyberspace was very different. I mean, it was the information superhighway. It was, you know, the ultimate uh, tool that was going to bring democracy and freedom to people all over the world. I mean, Facebook was was lauded for helping to bring about the Jasmine Revolution in you know, Egypt and Tunisia, and uh, even though I'm pretty sure that would have happened without Facebook as well, right? But there was that understanding that here was this sort of new communication technology that allowed people to connect, you know, across boundaries that otherwise you know would make it difficult for them to communicate. Uh, across walls, across iron curtains, whatever other metaphor you can think of. Um, and then, of course, people started connecting with each other who were trying to, you know, commit terrorist crimes or organize, uh, you know, repressive actions like we've seen in Myanmar now. So it's then all of a sudden the Internet becomes something dangerous. You know? And I think that... Uh, discussion about how the internet is, is dangerous and brings gives people a platform or a way of communicating that you cannot control very easily. That that discussion, which was part of the discussion in China from the beginning, now is, is only just starting out here. So, um, and I remember when I was living in London and there were, I don't remember which year, but there were sort of riots in North London and all of a sudden, so the British government was sort of openly saying, well, we've, we found out that these sort of violent riots and looting and burning of houses, you know, that these people were communicating through Facebook and that shouldn't happen. We should have access to, to Facebook. We should be able to block that. And, to, and so, you know, these are the kind of discussions that are now starting to emerge. Uh, and so the the reputation of companies like Facebook and the whole understanding of cyberspace is very different from now from what it was 10, 15 years ago. Right? So it's a very dangerous space now and it's a space that needs to be controlled one way or the other. Um, you mentioned, um, that I guess, this, the security of the cyberspace and how in China there are, there are different methods of um, protecting the cyberspace or for security interests and the US as well and the UK, there are different laws. And it seems like this, um, even though the cyberspace is very interconnected um, between different countries, laws are kind of enacted um, still on national boundaries. Should there be or do you think there's ever a possibility that for like internet security or cyberspace security, there, there could be something that's more international and like a, a body that's that kind of incorporates more of the like different countries that kind of talks about cyberspace security. Um, well, I think so. Yes, I, I mean, I think there is 
Yeah, there there are international bodies already that sort of ensure that internet traffic works. I mean, something as 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 simple as just uh, the registration of domain names. I mean, I think there there are certain things about the internet that are already international and that were set up, you know, at the beginning of the internet with the understanding that it was this was simply a sort of a, a communication tool, like similar to cell phones but better, right? But um, but but when it comes to sort of regulating what actually happens in cyberspace, um, it you know, to a very large extent, it seems that that this is left to national governments, but national governments have no idea where to start. I mean, this comes back to the hallucination about about borders, right? because it's simply impossible in most cases to sort of decide which part of the internet specifically is belongs to which country unless you do what even China did not do unless you make your network your, your national network that you know the bunch of cables that connects the computers in your country if you make sure that their way of functioning is completely different from other countries but but you know no country has done that um, so it's, it, it will require some sort of international effort, um, especially when dealing with international crime and, and terrorism and things like that. But it's, um, I think at the moment still a lot of people are still hung up on this idea, this imagination of, of cyberspace somehow being divided into national domains the way that we believe meat space to be divided. Um, and so this comes back to the, the Great Firewall. So people have sort of criticized this, <coughs> this obsession that we have, especially in the West, with this notion of the Great Firewall. So whenever people talk about censorship in China, then someone will mention the Great Firewall. And, and really what that is, is, is some sort of, you know, as other scholars have, have argued, it's not my own idea, but what this is is some sort of collective memory of the of the Cold War. Right? So in the Cold War, we were the ones, you know, sending radio signals across the Iron Curtain into Eastern Europe and into the Soviet Union. And then there were these sort of courageous people in the communist world who were sort of clinging to their little transistor radios and were receiving that signal and thereby, you know, were becoming agents of freedom. Uh, uh, so the internet doesn't work that way. It doesn't. The signal doesn't go from point A to point B. You know, the signal is broken down into packets that go to point B via all kinds of different routes and channels. There's not one way of sending information on the internet. There's not one thing that can block it. And more importantly, the internet allows people within certain countries to communicate with each other. And so it's not just about us sending something across that wall and creating freedom and, and internet censorship is not about keeping something out from outside, it's much more about controlling your own citizens and making sure that they don't do things that you don't want them to do using that technology. Uh, so, um, so I think a lot of the issues related to the internet, security, control, are issues that are very difficult to solve as long as you have this sort of outdated notion of what the internet is and how it can somehow be 
linked to specific countries, jurisdictions, etc. That is very interesting. Um, I guess so. Since there's a difference between how China views the internet and kind of and how the rest of the world seems to view the internet and use it, its usage, um, are there any similarities though between um, I guess how China and the U.S. view the internet and the virtual sphere? Yeah. So I think that the similarities are increasing. I think so. China has always seen it as something that has some inherent dangers to its stability and especially to to the the rule of its party. Uh, I think these views are now becoming more widespread here as well. Uh, so you know, you mentioned the the uh, upheaval about the sort of Facebook. Post that okay, yeah. supposedly influenced uh, the U.S. election, uh, which is total nonsense, uh, because you know Clinton and Trump spent about you know a thousand times more money on Facebook adverts than the Russians ever did. So, uh, so it's it's not even you know what the Russians did if if the Russians did it. But let's say the Russians did it. You know it was you know those ads were maybe one percent of all the total ads that Clinton and Trump put out there. So it's you know. It is, but for some reason we are now worried about these things, and we are now we see that as a threat. We see Facebook as a threat. We want to sort of make sure that you know, as a state, as a nation, we can somehow control these threats. So, um, other the other sort of elephant in the room, which uh, is of course pornography, where pretty much every country in the world including China, agrees that certain types of pornography should not be available on the internet. Some of them will allow them, in some cases, for people above a certain age, which then usually connects to a paywall. Uh, and in other countries, uh, there, there are sort of stricter controls. But it's, uh, again, that's sort of a global industry that has in fact been responsible for many of the technical innovations on the internet, but that at the same time is seen by governments all over the world as a, as a, and communities all over the world as a threat, not so much a political but a moral threat. So when it comes to that type of censorship, control and fear, uh, you know, pretty much every government in the world uh, is very similar. Um, that was very interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to add in this topic? Or? Uh, well, just to say that, you know, we've mainly been talking about the internet and really mainly about the World Wide Web. And, and cyberspace, of course, is much bigger. Cybersecurity is a much more complex issue than, than this little segment of it that I know something about. So. Uh, and certainly when we're talking about sort of military security, I think there are, there are aspects of the technology of, uh, you know, of machines communicating with machines, if you come back to this definition of cyberspace, that have very, very serious consequences for security. Right? So what I'm interested in and what I know something about is, is things that are more to do with you know, written and visual communication and how they represent notions such as borders and and threats and types of control. So security, of course, is much much bigger than that. 
Um, so yeah, thank you so much for such an interesting podcast. I hope all of our listeners have learned something new. And um, it's been a very informative way to end um, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, so please tune in next week for the next NDISC podcast found on our SoundCloud and our website. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.